Amen, amen. Thank you, worship team, and uh, thank you, children's ministry workers. Let's show our appreciation for them. We love you, appreciate you. Thank you very much. Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, It is great to be with you. Would love for you to open your Bibles now to Acts 13, verse 13 and following. That's on page 921 in your pew Bibles, Acts 13, 13. As many of you uh, may know, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Timothy Keller passed away from uh, pancreatic cancer and entered into his eternal reward. I had the the privilege of of meeting Tim on a couple of occasions. He was a wonderful, godly, surprisingly tall man, um, and had the, the, the joy of sitting under his preaching many times as well. He was a generational voice, and uh, regardless of whatever you may have thought of, of some of the things he said and some of the opinions he held, uh, if you sat under the word when he was preaching it, you were thankful. I imagine that people would have said the same thing 150 years ago, uh, considering the ministry of Charles Spurgeon. It's just a privilege to hear the word of God uh, rightly, faithfully, and powerfully expounded, and uh, Tim did a wonderful job of that, which leads me to my question for you this morning. If there was one preacher in the history of the church that you could have the chance to sit under, I wonder who that would be. Would it be Martin Lloyd-Jones? Uh, would, it, would it be Spurgeon? Would it be Luther? I imagine there'd be quite a spray zone when Luther was preaching. I don't, I don't know. Uh, would it be Augustine? Who, who would it be? Well, this morning we have the incredible privilege of hearing from the Apostle Paul. He's not here live, of course, sorry to disappoint you, uh, but through the inspiration of the scriptures, he still speaks. And this morning we're looking at Paul's preaching in the synagogue of a place called Antioch of Pisidia. Uh, There were a couple of cities, we know of three, there may have been more, but there were a couple of cities in the ancient world named Antioch. So it is a bit confusing because Paul actually begins his missionary journey in a place called Antioch. And then now he's kind of like halfway through his missionary journey or a good chunk into it, and and he's preaching in another place called Antioch. This is a, a different Antioch. He started in Antioch of Syria, and now he's in Antioch or Antiochus uh, or Antioch of Pisidia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Uh, several cities were named this way because of one of the great Greek kings that followed Alexander the Great, Antiochus the Great. So Luke records this particular sermon as a representative sample. It's, uh, it's the longest of these sorts of sermons from Paul that we have in Acts. And so we're to assume that in other occasions, when you read a story and it says that, that Paul was preaching in the synagogue here or there, we're to assume that he was preaching a sermon that would have been broadly similar to this one here. So this is quite a privilege. In this chapter, we, we get a behind-the-scenes look at the message that literally turned the first century world upside down. So hopefully you have your Bibles open now. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up. And motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it 
For about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not, I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This morning I want to uh, divide this fairly long story up into three parts. We'll look at the sermon itself, the various responses to the sermon, and then the incredible effect that the sermon had that Luke records for us in verses 46 to 52. So let's begin with the sermon itself. As I mentioned a moment ago, Luke provides this as a representative sample. It would have been a, a summary, I'm sure, The Apostle Paul preached for much longer than this, but this is a summary that faithfully reflects how he preached on that day and that reflects how he generally preached when he was invited to address the synagogue service. A Jewish synagogue service had a certain liturgy. Liturgy just means order. By the way, every, every religious service has a liturgy. We have one too. We're just too Baptist to admit it, but, but literally just means order. But if you've, if you've been to an evangelical church before, you know there's an order, right? Typically, you get two songs, then some announcements, a prayer, a little offering time, then you get another song, because you can't have a sermon right after the offering, right? So you got to have another song, kind of warm you up, then you get a sermon, and then there's a response, and then maybe some other stuff, and they send you home with a blessing. That's the liturgy. And if we did it in the exact opposite order, all of you would fall down dead from shock and and disturbance, right? We get just just the way things are done. And there was a liturgy in the Jewish synagogue service. Uh, It began with a recitation of the Shema, uh, which was sort of the Jewish creed, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You've probably heard that before. Followed by a series of prayers, followed by a reading from the law, and then another reading from the prophets. After which, if there was anyone there uh, qualified to expound and teach the word, that person would be invited to stand up and give a message based on the readings of the day, which is exactly what's happening here. Look again at verse 15. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul preached a sermon that day based on the scheduled readings. He would have known what they were ahead of time, and he came prepared to preach about Jesus from those texts. His sermon has two points and a closing challenge. His first point is that Jesus is the son of David and the long-awaited Savior of the world. Like Stephen in Acts 6, by the way, if you're a Bible reader and you've read through Acts before, you notice that Paul's sermon is is very similar uh, in a lot of ways, in broad outline, broad approach to the sermon that's recorded for us in Acts 6, the sermon of uh, Stephen. We get that story in Acts sort of 6 and 7, and we have Stephen's lengthy sermon there. Lots of similarities. Uh, like Stephen, Paul begins with a historical survey. He kind of begins in a general way, and then he zooms in pretty quickly on the storyline of David. In verse 23, Paul says, Of this man's offspring, so of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. 
This focus, this zooming in on on the Davidic storyline leads many scholars to suggest that probably the reading for that day, uh, or at least one of the readings, was from 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is the passage where God promises to David that one of his descendants will sit on an everlasting throne. And then the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is put forth by the Apostle Paul as proof that Jesus is the long-awaited Son of David. He's the one to whom all of these promises ultimately point. So look at verses 34 to 37. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, as he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So somebody is coming who will receive all these promises. Therefore, he says in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. You'll know who that is because this person will never see corruption. But Paul says, now, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So Paul says, listen, God made a series of promises to David. He said, someone in your line is going to receive all these promises. Paul says, now, of course, we know that it wasn't David himself who received all these promises because David lies rotting in the grave. You can visit his tomb. You could have in those days if you went to Jerusalem. But the body of Jesus is not rotting in the ground. His flesh did not experience any corruption because there was no stain of sin in him. Therefore, death could not touch him. The grave could not hold him. He descended into death to set the captives free, but then he arose victorious on the third day. Hallelujah. That's the gospel. Jesus is the son of David and the long-awaited savior of the world. He's the one that we've been waiting for. That's Paul's first point. He begins to move seamlessly into his second point there in verse 38. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So Paul's second point is that Jesus has come offering forgiveness, and freedom from sin. So let's be very clear, because you'll hear differently sometimes. Salvation in the Bible is salvation from sin. Salvation from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin. One happens immediately, one happens progressively. According to the Bible, the wages of sin is death. That was the agreed-upon price for rebelling against our creator. But the miracle of the gospel is that God, in the person of his son, pays the debt that we owe, throws it into the sea. He he deals with it entirely. It no longer exists. So think of it like this. Imagine that you were arrested for running a red light, and you went to traffic court, and the judge said to you, Mr. Smith, uh, we have you on camera running a red light. So what is your plea? And of course, since they've got you dead to rights, what are you going to say? You're going to say, I I plead guilty, and the judge is going to say something like, all right, Mr. Smith, well then, your penalty, your fine is $1,000. Okay, fair enough, but what if you don't have $1,000? What if you can't pay the penalty? Well, that's a significant issue. You might lose your license until you're able to pay. Now, imagine that the judge, who in this illustration happens to be your father also, goes outside to the teller's office and pays your debt out of his own personal account. Has there been any miscarriage of justice in that scenario? No. An appropriate and fair verdict was rendered according to the law. 
and the appropriate fine was paid. But the mercy in the story is that the debt that you owed was paid by somebody else. That's the gospel, or at least the forgiveness part of the gospel. And that's why the Apostle Paul is so eager to affirm the complete innocence of Jesus, which he does in verse 28. Because if Jesus had been guilty of any sin whatsoever, then his death would have been merely the death that he owed to God. But because he was perfectly innocent and because he was infinitely worthy, his blood is precious enough to pay for the sins of the entire world. That's the math of the gospel. On the cross, an infinite deposit of merit was made such that all who come to the cross in a spirit of confession, repentance, and faith are reckoned forgiven. Their account is cleared. It's squared. There are no outstanding debts. There is no remaining barrier that would keep that person from having a relationship with God. Hallelujah. But the gospel is actually even better than that. Because if that was all that the gospel was, we'd still have a pretty big problem. The big problem is that you would still be you. You would still be sick and broken and deceived. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This might be the most important thing if you're visiting here and you've, somebody dragged you here and the promise of lunch or whatever, however it is we get people to come. And you're trying to figure these Christian people out, right? What's, what, what, what are the, what's the key to understanding these weird folks? This, this verse might be the key. According to the Bible, human beings are, are not now the people they were created and intended to be. We are fallen. I would say this. There's probably two things you need to understand if you want to understand the Christian worldview. The, the first one, we're not talking about today, but the first one is... We, we believe there's an answer to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Our Bible begins with the answer, in the beginning God. So that's why we believe that, things, that there's something rather than nothing. That's our answer to that. But the other thing you need to understand about us is we also believe that things today are not the way they were supposed to be. We're off course. Like this is, we're on a huge detour here. We are not who we were supposed to be. We believe two weird things about human beings. And if you don't believe both, I would argue you're not any kind of Christian in terms of the historic boundaries of what we believe. We believe that human beings, every single human being, doesn't matter what your IQ is, doesn't matter what your capacities are, you should be terrified. You live in a world right now that defines human beings according to their intelligence and capacity. Good luck with that in your later, later, later years, right? Which explains why we have slid so quick and so fast and so far into this whole made thing. But we believe two things. We believe that all human beings, regardless of their intelligence or capacity, are image and likeness of God, meaning they are shockingly dignified and worthy. They are creatures of enormous value. They they resemble and represent God. Every single human being, we believe that. But then we also believe that human beings are fallen and therefore deceived and diminished over countless generations. That's what the Bible is saying here. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick who can understand it. According to the Bible, sin is like a virus that deceives and diminishes human beings. So for the gospel to be the good news we all think it is, it has to deal with the penalty 
for sin, and it also has to deal with the power of sin. And thanks be to God, it does. Look again at verse 39. He says, and by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Here we get a really helpful window into how the Apostle Paul looks at the law. He doesn't say that the law is bad. He just says that it wasn't strong enough to arrest our descent into sin. There's a funny video making its way around the internet, uh, which, by the way, I think is the first and best use of the internet, you know, passing around funny videos of your family members and pets. And uh, my still all-time favorite video is the video of the cat hypnotizing the dog to give him the treats, the greatest use of the internet ever. But uh, closely following on the heels of that, there's a fantastic video making its way around the the interweb this week. And uh, it was taken, I think, I assume it was taken by a young person because young people know how to work the internet, and, um, and they're good with video. And the video, it's a family barbecue, and there's two middle-aged men. I, it looks like a dad and his brother. It looks actually like me and my brother, but it's not. I checked. Um, but it's, it's two middle-aged men who are very stocky and quite clearly past their prime, Right? I, I, I'm not even going to look around because I'm tempted to like look at some folks in the church and say, this is a video of me and you playing basketball. Is basically what it is. And so it's these two stocky middle-aged men playing a pretty intense game of one-on-one at a family barbecue in the backyard. And they're going for it, and bless them, uh, because they, like I said, they're pretty stocky and stubby and well, well past the days when they should be doing this. And, uh, and they're going hard, and uh, the one fella, I assume it's the dad, he goes for a layup, but his vertical is not now what it was in high school, and uh, he doesn't get close, and uh, the ball doesn't go where it's supposed to, and it actually hits the bottom of the rim and comes back and hits him in the face, and, and he lands, and he's wobbly and destabilized, and he trips, and he, he crashes hard into the neighbor's fence, and actually right through the neighbor's fence and into the backyard. It's glorious. And... Uh, and, and And the point, I don't know if there's a point to the video, but the point I'm making is that that poor little fence didn't have a chance, right? Like it was just not strong enough to withstand a middle-aged man in pursuit of athletic glory. (laughs) And, and, And that is exactly what the Apostle Paul says about the law. The law was like a barrier, like a fence that was simply not strong enough to withstand or to withstand our bloated, oversized, out of control pursuit of sin. The law couldn't stop us, couldn't turn us around. So something stronger was required. And according to the Apostle Paul, that something stronger was Jesus. Jesus sets us free from the power of sin by giving us a new heart, a new nature, and by filling that new heart with an empowering spirit. You have to have a new heart. You know, When I was uh, younger in evangelicalism, we used to talk all the time about being born again. That language has almost completely disappeared from our vocabulary, which is too bad because it's in the Bible. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say unto you, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Theologically, that's the miracle of regeneration. What the Bible is saying is that, here's what you need to understand about yourself. You are so sick you are so deceived, you're so drunk on sin that we can't convince you, we can't argue you, 
we can't even heal you. Like, this is not a problem that therapy can solve. You need to be born again. If, if, if you're ever going to see this, if this is ever going to make sense to you, like it's not like you can just sit here and this gets 5% more compelling every week. That's not how it works. You've got to be born again. You've got to pray for Jesus to do a miracle on you, to take your heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, to make you alive again at the core. And then you've got to receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the antidote, as it were, to the diminishing influence of sin. The Holy Spirit comes in and basically undoes all that sin has done to us. The Holy Spirit comes in and retunes all of our desires, fashions again, all of our inner workings and convictions, slowly but surely, by one degree of glory to the next, it transforms us into the image of Christ. So sin takes us down and diminishes us, and slowly but surely, the Holy Spirit brings us back up, all the way to the top, all the way into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. That's the very definition of freedom in the Bible. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, finish this for me, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That's what freedom is. It's funny. Our whole understanding of freedom has changed in the last couple of decades. We think now that freedom means I can do whatever I want. That may be a definition of freedom, but it's not at all what freedom means in the Bible. Freedom in the Bible means that you are in a place now where you are living like a human being, you are living like the person you were created and intended by God to be, not because you have to, not because the law threatens to smack you if you take a step wrong, but because you want to. It is what feels right and good and beautiful and natural to you. That's where you want to get to. That's freedom. That is salvation. Thanks be to God. So those are Paul's two main points there. And then in verse 41, he leaves them with a closing challenge. He says that failure to respond to this offer of salvation will result in terrible judgment. Look at verse 41 there. He says, look, you scoffers. And most of your Bibles, do you see? Yes. So we preserve that in the slide there. See the the extra scare quote there? Uh, When you have two or, or three of those quotation marks in your Bible, that indicates this is a quotation from the Old Testament. Some of your Bibles will italicize that or, or, or even separate it out from the main body. They'll do something to help you get it. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you. So Paul's quoting there from Habakkuk 1.5. And in that passage, God was saying to the Israelites, listen, if you don't respond to the message I'm sending you right now through the prophet, then you'll experience a judgment you won't even believe. It will be so severe, you'll, you'll, it'll make you question everything you think you know about the world. Of course, in the historical context, he's talking about the invasion of the Babylonians, where they came in and they wiped out the Jewish people, they encircled Jerusalem, the siege of Jerusalem was brutal and awful and terrible, resulted in many people starving to death. And of course, the siege was broken. The Babylonians were victorious. They took a great many Jewish people into captivity, into exile. It was the catastrophe. It was the end of the Jewish people as a nation. It was the catastrophe in the Old Testament. Paul uses that as his metaphor. 
He says to the people who've heard his sermon, he says, understand this. Today, you stand at a very similar crossroads. A prophet has spoken to you a message of salvation. And if you fail to respond, then you too will face a terrible judgment, the likes of which you could not even begin to imagine. Those are Paul's terms. He offers them a binary choice, and he calls on them to respond and to receive abundant and eternal life in Christ. So that's the sermon. Now let's take a few minutes and look at the various responses that it elicits. You can see those in verses 42 to 45. If you have your Bible open, you can see them both there. I'll give them to you. That some people became enthusiastic followers and some people became virulent opposers. So verse 43, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So many, many Jews and Jewish proselytes converted. Paul and Barnabas encouraged them to continue in the grace of God. But then Luke also records in verse 45, but when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So some responded very positively and some responded very negatively. That's a pattern that will be repeated over and over and over again over the rest of the book of Acts. Now let's talk briefly as well about the effect that this sermon had because by the grace of God, it was effective. Like, You didn't just hear this sermon. This sermon changed the landscape of that city. It washed over those people like a tsunami. And it left behind a world that was significantly changed. So let's talk about that. Verses 46 to 52. The first effect of this sermon was division. You can see that very plainly in verses 46 to 48. The synagogue that day after the sermon was basically split down the middle. Some believed the message that Paul had spoken, and some didn't. And as soon as they rejected it, Paul, in turn, turns away from them. Look at verse 46. He says to the synagogue as a whole, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. Paul says, we we came here to preach a message of salvation. Those of you who have believed it can come with us. But for the rest of you, God is leaving you behind. You judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life? Fine, that's your decision. You're out. We're moving on. That's the meaning of the little sand symbol at the end of the story in verse 51. When they leave the city, they take off their shoes and they smack their shoes together like this before they leave. I. Howard Marshall explains that symbolism here, saying the Christians were demonstrating in a particularly vigorous manner that Jews who rejected the gospel and drove out the missionaries were no longer truly part of Israel, but were no better than unbelievers. That's what the gospel does. It divides. Jesus said that it would, right? Remember Jesus said, Don't you, you think I, do you think I came to bring peace to the world? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. The gospel divides people. It hives them off from their previous association and then it welds them into a new eternal family. The gospel is a sword and when it passes over you, it leaves you on one side or the other. Now the second result, there are are more. I've cut this down from five to three just for sake of time. It's 
Communion Sunday, but uh, I bet you we could find at least five. But here are the three I think are most important. Second result is persecution, second effect. Look at verse 50. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Here's the thing. When people really understand the gospel, they either embrace it or they oppose it. You can't be indifferent to the gospel. If you're indifferent to the gospel, it means that you have not either heard it correctly preached or you have not listened very well to what was preached to you. It's very interesting. I think for the first time in the history of this country in Canada, Canadians are actually beginning to hear and understand the gospel. When I started in ministry in 1994, the big issue that I faced in talking to unbelievers was trying to convince them that the gospel was true. You know, their posture was they were kind of leaning in and they wanted it to be true, but they're like, yeah, but how can, you know, what about the dinosaurs? And, and you know, and, 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 what, and, and what about, you know, how could somebody really rise from the dead? And, uh, and you know, so they, they wanted it to be true, but they needed help getting there. That's, that's how it felt to me back then when I started. The big, big challenge was convincing people that the gospel is true. Then about halfway through my ministry career, I, I felt like a change in the air. It wasn't really about convincing people anymore that the gospel was true. It was about convincing people that the gospel was good. All of a sudden, people are like, yeah, but God, what about like all the Canaanites? And he just wipes them out. And, and, and what about hell? And, and um, God, he's sure got a lot of opinions, doesn't he? And, and, and so is, is the gospel good? But in the last couple of years, I've felt a further change. The challenge now is convincing people that the gospel is safe. Which I think is actually a, a pretty good challenge. I feel like it means like all of a sudden I think we're getting somewhere here. Now why is it that people are wondering if the gospel is safe? I think it's because people have figured out now, because the options are stark now. You can't be half in and half out. We're, like, we're at hokey pokey Christianity now, right? Like you're either, you got your whole self in or your whole self out. And, and so the options are clearer. I think people understand it better. They understand now that the gospel is disruptive. It, it will cut you off from your family. It will cut you off from your culture, don't we? I mean, people tell us all the time that if we're, if we're, in all, if we're all in on this, we're going to end up on the wrong side of history. Isn't that what they say? Well, we're going to end up on the other side of something. That's for sure. The gospel will completely disrupt your life. If, you, if you're here as a Canadian and you're checking out this church thing, let me just tell you up front, like if you come into this, this will completely mess you up. Uh, it will upend your life. You cannot add. It's not like your life plus a little Jesus anymore. It will completely upend your life. When Jesus comes into your life, he comes in like a wrecking ball. He comes in as master of the house, and he starts making changes. He's like this, out, this, move, that, in, you, zip it, right? Like he comes in as master of the house. That's not safe. That is totally and entirely disruptive. And once people understand that, they either embrace it or they 
oppose it, sometimes, oftentimes, violently. That's what generally happens when the gospel begins to truly penetrate a foreign culture. And then lastly, we've seen division, we've seen persecution, and now paradoxically, at the end of the story, we see joy. Look at verse 52. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, why in the world would this be? The gospel has just divided them from their families. It's just divided them from their their synagogue, which is their whole community base. It's divided them from their culture, right? Jesus just come in and started changing stuff, and he's going to do a full heart transplant. There's no way that's not going to be painful. So why are these people rejoicing? Why were they filled with joy? And the answer, of course, is because Jesus is better. Disruptive? Yes. But better. His ways are right. His word is true. His grace is enough. And his spirit is life abundant and eternal. Praise the Lord. That was Paul's gospel. That was the gospel he preached. And by the grace of God, that is the gospel that is still preached in faithful churches all over the world today. It still does the same work, and it still comes with the same warning. You can't listen to this message and walk away unaffected. Like it or not, you have been affected today. A dog whistle has been blown in this place. And some of you have heard that and moved closer to the master. And some of you have been annoyed by that and have been pushed further away, but none of you have been unaffected. Some of you may have heard that dog whistle for the first time today, and so like a dog, your eyes are wide open, your ears are perked up, and you're listening, you're paying attention. And to you, I say, as one dog to another, come. Come right now. Come and follow the master. He is good, you can trust him, and he knows the way. So come. Leave aside the idolatry of self and the deceitfulness of sin. Leave it all behind right now. Leave it behind today and come. Come unto Jesus and be saved. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for the old, old gospel, a word that is as old as the church itself, a word that makes the church that calls the church into being and that governs and constrains the church. May we never have anything else to say to this world. May we take whatever responses, reactions, and effects you ordain by your spirit. And may we continue to look longingly for the return of our master to take us home. Amen.